chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and I want to begin this morning by addressing something that I said last Sunday. Um, something that I said in last week's message, and I said something that was really quite uncharitable. I know, go figure, me. I opened my mouth and said something that was really uncharitable. And I want to own up to it, and I want to ask your forgiveness for it, and I want to clarify it. I made a remark about bashing Catholics. How many remember that? Yeah. Open mouth, insert both feet. We don't want to bash Catholics, but I do want to be clear. That was uncharitable. That was unloving. Catholics are made in the image of Jesus, and they need rescue. But what I do want to do, and I won't, exp- and I won't apologize for this, is I want to expose the heresy of their beliefs. Not so that we can think we're better. I want to expose the heresy of their teaching, because their teaching, their beliefs, will damn their souls to hell. And what I did not do was convey a care for their souls as much as I conveyed just a dislike. And that was wrong, so please forgive me. I also want to make a recommendation for you. Sometimes you are, every once in a while, somebody will say something to me, hey, PD, I'm looking for a good resource, maybe something to use with family devotions or something for myself. I want to make a recommendation to you while we're going through the book of Romans. This is a little book that was put in my hand several years ago. It was given to me as a gift, and I took it and read it, and I loved it. It's called A Gospel Primer. Now, it looks like primer. It's not the paint, the white stuff you put on the walls. It's primer, okay, like, like the old primers that we used in one-room schoolhouses. This is a great little book, and it's by a guy named Milton Vincent. I would highly recommend that you get a hold of this and that you digest it and read it. It's just scripture, okay? It's just scripture, and I like the way that this guy has, has done this. Um, he's taken scripture and put it in everyday uh, words. Um, he talks about, in this book, reasons to rehearse the gospel every day, and then he just writes out the gospel, in part two of it. He writes it out in, in, in prose version, and then in the part three, he writes it out in poetry version. Some of you are poetry people. I don't get you, but this will speak to you. Some of you are prose people. Some of you are not readers at all. You should still get it and read it, okay? So let me recommend to you this book. Now, let's go to Romans chapter one. So Paul is writing to a community of believers, probably several communities of believers within the city of Rome. There's probably more than one gathering of believers in this city of Rome because it's written during the height of the Roman Empire, and in many ways, Rome has become the epicenter of the, of the known world, of the civilized world. And so he's writing to this, this group of believers, maybe several groups. It's a city that's got over a million people in it. Okay, I often think that we think about historical old cities like this and think of them as very small outposts and, and, just, and just little tiny little villages. This was a very cosmopolitan city of a million people. And in this big city, there were obviously some really wealthy people. 
I mean, just don't do it now. I, it's a danger to say it. But just Google Rome and look at some of the old Roman structures and some of the ruins of some of the things that you'll see. There was a lot of wealth in Rome, okay? But there was also a lot of poverty in Rome. Predominantly, most of the Roman citizens were slaves. A vast majority of Roman citizens were slaves. They, they worked for other people. They were indebted to other people. Most likely, the church there or the churches there were started by converts who were saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. They may have been in, in Jerusalem at that time coming to, to, to fulfill their obligations. Some of them were Jews and they took back the Christian faith to Rome was written during the reign of Nero. If you know anything about Roman history, some of you are like, I'm trying my best to forget Roman history. But if you know anything about Roman history, Nero was not a good dude. <coughs> Excuse me. He was a notoriously wicked man who hated Christians. In fact, he probably burned the city of Rome himself so that he could blame it on the Jews and the Christians. That's the kind of guy that he was. And Paul is writing to them from the city of Corinth, where he's wrapping up his third missionary journey. And in this letter, he is highly motivated to introduce himself to the church at Rome, to the churches in Rome, because he wants to come to them. And he understands there's a group of believers there in Rome who desperately need to get grounded in their faith. I think you and I can relate to that. But I don't think we can relate to it necessarily on the scale that they can. Forget the kind of world that we live in today where, where you can go to Amazon or you can go on the internet to Christian book distributors and you can buy good resources, you can buy commentaries, you can buy study Bibles, you can get whatever you need and put it in your hands and you can grow by having that. They didn't have that. Here they were, first generation Christians in this big city where, where there is a pressure against Christianity and they're just trying to figure it out. And Paul is desperate to teach them and so he's writing to them. And yes, we pointed out as we begun our study in this letter, it's a very theological work. And the reason that it's a theological work is because they need to be grounded in their theology. Think about it. They're doing the best they have, or the best they can with what they have, and really all they have is just the gospel. Let me encourage you. If all you have is the gospel, you can do pretty well with that. You can do pretty well with that. And so Paul's heart and his motivation is for them. And so I want you to see that this morning as we open the Word of God. We're going to see Paul's heart this morning for the people in Rome, people he's never even met. But we're also going to see his motivation for them. And actually, this is the first of two parts because we're not going to get to the full motivation. We'll get to the last two verses of what we're going to read this morning next week. We're going to read verses 8 through 17 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, let's read together. I'll read, you follow along. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, 
that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans is all about what, church? You were slow. Romans is about what? Okay. And it's the overarching theme in the book, okay? And we can't lose sight of that, Okay. And so, as we now back up to verse 8, we have a lot to unpack about Paul's heart. But before we do that, let's pray one more time. So, Father, this morning, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not, make us through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to see first the apostle's heart. This is the kind of heart that is motivated to serve a group of believers in a really tough place, and it hasn't even met that group of believers. Think about that. Think about that. We actually saw a little bit this morning on that video that we saw. Q Kim has a heart for a group of believers that he really hasn't had much interaction with, and he has such a heart for them that he's willing to invest energy and time to put the Bible or parts of the Bible in audio for them. Similar to the heart of the Apostle Paul here, and I would submit to you that it's a shepherd's heart. It's a shepherd's heart. Paul gets a rap, and he gets this this kind of understanding about Paul that Paul had to be a really hard, abrasive, combative guy, and I would submit to you that's not who Paul is. Was Paul bold to defend the gospel? Yes, but Paul was a guy who cared about people. He cared about the message that he had been called to share. He cared about and he loved the God who had radically rescued him on the road to Damascus and totally changed his life. He loved him so much that he had a great love for people around him. Which tells me this, if you and I don't have a great love for the people around us, we must not be really gripped by God's love for us. If we don't have a great love for others around us, it must mean that, that we don't really understand or we really don't care about God's great love for us. Paul's already described himself, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, as a slave to Christ, called to be an apostle. He's devoted to the gospel. But all these things really don't matter in terms of ministering to people unless you really care doesn't matter what you call yourself. doesn't really even matter what you believe. In fact, I was reading this week, and in a commentary of a guy who I have a lot of respect for, and if I mentioned his name, which I'm not going to because it's not about people this morning, but he wrote this in his commentary, and I love this. He said this, before I show you my theology, allow me to show you my heart. I love that. Church, does, does truth matter? Does it matter? 
It really does. Truth really matters. And in a day and age where truth is under assault from every different direction, it really matters what we believe. But you know what else matters just as much? That the people you're trying to convey that truth to know that you care. And it's not just in what you say, it's in how you live. And Paul here is saying to them, because he hasn't seen them, he's trying to write. Think about this, he has one shot to get this right. (laughs) He has one shot to get this right. And so he's writing to them and he's conveying his heart to them because he understands this. If they don't know that I care for them, they're not even going to care about the rest of this letter. No pressure, right? No pressure. But let me reiterate again. Truth matters, but you will not get a hearing for that truth if people don't think you care. How many of you have been hammered with truth before by people who were cold and unfeeling? Did you respond to that? Did it give you the warm fuzzies? I'm guessing not. Did you respond to that truth? And I'm not saying that we need to make the gospel soft. The gospel is pretty clear, and the gospel has some pretty rough edges, doesn't it? Because it tells us we're all sinners, right? Nobody wants to hear that. But here's the thing. If you're going to share somebody with somebody the gospel, they better know that you're motivated because you care about them. And here, that applies in so many ways. It applies in our homes. <laughs> you know, you can't lead your home well, parent, if, if your kids don't think you don't care about them. You can't lead in your vocation if the people that you're leading in your vocation, if they don't know that you care for them, if they don't think that you care a whit about them, guess what? They don't care what you have to say. It applies on Wednesday night. How many of you work in Awana? Put your hands up high, proudly. Guess what? The kids that show up here, they have good radar detectors. They know whether or not you care. And if you don't care, how many of you work in Impact? Teens know whether you care or not. Am I right, teens? You can spot it a mile away. You can spot the fake ones, can't you? If we don't first care, and if we don't communicate that care, it doesn't matter, matter how good our message is. It doesn't matter. Because what we've communicated to them is this. I'm better than you. You'll never attain to this, but here's what you need. So Paul here has to open up his heart and kind of reveal himself. And notice how he does it here. First of all, he has a thankful heart. Look at verse 8. First. Now, normally when you and I see first, we think about it in sequence. Like he's, there's going to be a first, and if there's going to be a first, there's going to be automatically what? A second. No, think of first in a different way here. It's basically like, hey, listen up. That's kind of what he's saying here. It's an attention getter. He's like, hey, I got something important to say. After, after he's introduced himself to them, he's like, hey, catch this. And here's what he wants them to catch. First of all, he's got a thankful heart. It's, it's not a chronological term as much as it's just a, a device to grab their attention. Thanking here is interesting. It's in the present tense, which means it's a continual act of thanks. It's a continual act of thanks. Paul does this in all of his epistles except for one, with good reason. (laughs) 
He, he begins all of his epistles this way with thanks and a prayer of thanks for them, except for the one to the Galatians. And the Galatians had really messed some things up, okay? And he wasn't very thankful. In fact, they were quickly departing from the faith that he had preached to them and others had preached to them. And he, he wanted to write a letter to get their attention. But here, Paul is expressing thanks for a people that he's never even met before. You're like, so is that just hyperbole? Is he just faking it? No, no. He's thankful because there's a group of believers in a city where they're under constant pressure for their faith and they're holding firm. He's thankful that God is at work there. And guess what? You and I can always be thankful that God's at work, can't we? And so he's thankful for this group of believers. And I got to thinking this week, and I got real personal. In fact, I wrote it right here in my notes. And they don't know that I'm going to ask them that this morning. But there are, there are five of us who are elders in this church. And I really have to wonder, and I have to search my own heart, am I continually thankful for the people that I'm called to serve? Some of you are hard. You know how I know that? Because I'm hard. And we're called to have a spirit of thankfulness. And Paul here is serving these people in a letter, and he begins by first saying, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. But it doesn't just apply to the elders of this church, it applies to the sheep of this church. Are you thankful for the ones you're called to serve? Are you thankful for your children? Depends on the day or the minute, right? Are you thankful for your spouse? Again, day or minute, right? Are you thankful for the people that you teach in your Sunday school class? Are you thankful for the kids in your Awana handbook group? Yeah, the, the, the one kid, you know the one kid, who when you tell them all to sit down, that's his excuse to get up and start running circles in the room. You thankful for that one? Are you thankful for the people who are attending your Bible study? Or do you have an air of like, well, they should want to come because I'm leading the Bible study, right? <laughs> are you thankful? Are you thankful for the kids that are under your charge in, in, in vacation Bible school, for the kids who come to impact? Are we thankful for those who were called to serve? Paul's heart was a thankful heart. Let's just be honest. It's really easy on Sunday morning sitting in church because everything's perfect on Sunday mornings, Right? But Wednesday night, when the rubber meets the road, and, and for the 88th time, that one kid on the van does what that one kid on the van does, are we thankful for that kid? That kid might be the next, I don't know, C.H. Spurgeon. That kid, that kid might be the kid who is right now, who's being, his life is weighed in the balance, and all he needs is just one man or one woman to show him some love, and God's going to use that to transform his life. He might be that one kid. But notice what he's thankful for here. He's thankful because their faith is proclaimed in all the world. Their faith is proclaimed in all the world. And it, it's really interesting that he would say it that way. Before Paul writes this, several years before Paul writes this, in AD 49, Claudius, 
who was the emperor at that time, he actually expelled all the Christians from Rome. And let me tell you why, in his own words, why he did this. I love this. Because they constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. For some of you, that was a lot of words. Let me say that again. He const- they constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Christus. Christus being who? Christ. Notice what he's saying. The Christians were troublemakers. You know what? They were causing trouble in the name of Jesus. I can get behind that. We need more troublemakers in the name of Jesus. We, we need more people who, who are doing the loving thing, the thing that the world doesn't want to do. We need more people speaking truth. We need more people who are afraid to cause a little disturbance out in the world. Now, I'm not saying go out and just wear a kick-me sign in the world. What I'm saying is actually go out and live out your faith in the world. And you know what that does? It causes a disturbance. It does. That's the best kind of trouble to cause. And he's saying this, your reputation is going around the world for what you have done and what you are doing. So he has a thankful heart, but secondly, he also has a prayerful heart. See it there in verses 9 in the beginning of chapter 10. He says, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing, again, this continual action, without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers. You want to talk about being redundant? Without ceasing always. Like, like I am praying upon praying for you. You want to know if somebody cares for you? It's not if they come up to you in the hallway on Sunday and say, hey, how you doing? How's your week been? You want to know if someone really cares about you? If they come up to you and they say this, hey, I've been praying for you this week. How's your week been? And how can I pray for you in the coming week? Because let's be honest, it's really easy to say that and it's another thing to actually do that. Who would indict themselves this morning and say, I've told people I've prayed for them and then I've forgotten to do it? Yeah, Paul here is saying this, God's my witness. He's asking God to look and say, God judge me on this if I'm wrong. I am constantly praying for you, making mention of you in my prayers. There's a great concern. There's a genuine love and there's a great concern here for this group of believers. Again, I want to just emphasize to you, he has never met most of them. And he has this great love for them. And maybe it's easier to love when you don't know him. I don't know. (laughs) You think about it. What's interesting, though, what's interesting is, go with me to the end of the book, to chapter 15, almost the end. This is the kind of prayer that Paul's asking them to pray for him. How many of you need prayer? How many of you need prayer? You want know one of the best ways to get prayed for is by praying for others, <laughs> So one of the best ways to get prayed for is you yourself invest in praying for others. Look at verse 30 of chapter 15. He's, he's getting close to the end of this letter. He's telling them about his plans to come see them in Rome. And he says this in verse 30. I appeal to you. That's another word of saying, I really need this. I am begging you. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul's humble enough to admit that he needed prayed for. 
And he's not afraid to ask for it. Some of us are too proud to ask for prayer. I'll just John Wayne it. How's that working for you? Those of us who are too proud to ask to be prayed for often go through life very lonely, don't we? Here Paul's saying at the end of this, the thing that I told you at the beginning of this letter that I'm doing for you, I need it for me too. Do we care enough to pray for one another? We don't know what he's praying, but I would submit to you this week, if you want to know the kind of heart that Paul had when he prayed for other believers, let me give you three passages to look at this week. Go to Ephesians 3 and read that. Go to Philippians 1. Go to Colossians 1, and you will see examples of how Paul prayed for other believers. And i got to believe he's praying similarly here for them. But not only does he have a thankful heart, not only does he have a praying heart, he has a submissive heart. He has a submissive heart. Look, look at here now at the end of verse 10. He says, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I long to see you. Here's what he's saying. I desperately want to get to Rome. When we get to the final chapters of, Rome, of Romans, we'll see Paul's heart about how much he really wants to get there to Rome. It's going to be revealed in, in, in full for us. But he's saying, I desperately want to get here, but here's what I know. God's in charge here. And when, I, when it's time for me to get to Rome, I'll get there. He's going to work it out, so I'm going to get there. And, and let's understand, yeah, we can care all we want for people, but ultimately God's got to direct us in how we care and when we get to care for them. Some of you in this room have huge hearts of care and love for other people, and you can't possibly love everybody that you feel like you need to love. Here's what I know. God will direct you to those who you need to love. I don't always know how he's going to do it, but he always seems to make it pretty clear, doesn't he? And so he's saying, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He's submitted to God's designs here. He's submitted to God's plan. And fourthly, it's, it's just a heart of genuine care. He wants God's will to be done in their lives too because he really cares about them. He understands this. Maybe I'm not the right guy to come to Rome and preach to you and maybe God will never send me and maybe that's a good thing. But I want God's will for you. Let me ask you a question. How many of you struggle with knowing how to pray for somebody? How many of you struggle with knowing how to pray for somebody? If, if you're in this room and alive, you should answer yes to that. Because there are some of us who do a pretty good job of hiding our needs, right? You know how you can always pray best for somebody? Just ask that God's will be done in their life. Ask that they'll be submitted to God's will and that God will work in their life. That's like a surefire way because God's will is going to get accomplished, right? So if you don't know how to pray for that person, like, yeah, Dan, you are so hard to pray for. Just pray that God's will will be done in my life. So we see his heart. It's a heart that really cares. But let's see what was motivating him to get to Rome. What's motivating this guy? What, what about this heart is so motivated to get to these Roman believers? Well, the first one that we see here is what Aaron alluded to at the beginning. There was this mutual encouragement that he saw. Look at verse 11. 
for I long to see you. I have this great desire to see you that I may impart to you some, some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, we got to talk about that in just a second, but let's read the rest of it. That is, that we may mutually in, be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. His number one motivation is, is that there would be mutual encouragement. Some of you struggle with serving the Lord. Some of you struggle with it because you're getting older and you don't know how to do it anymore or where you can plug in. Some of you are struggling with it because you're like, I know I'm supposed to do it, but I don't know where to do it. I don't know how to do it. Some of you are struggling with the fact that, that you just don't do it. In those of you who don't actively serve the Lord that are right here in this room, you are robbing yourself of encouragement. Let me say that again. You are robbing yourself of encouragement. Not only are you robbing others who could benefit from your service, but you are robbing yourself. Because here's what I know. Every time that you set out to serve others and serve the Lord by serving others, you yourself get encouraged. Am I right, church? You don't sound sure of that. Is it true, though? If you set out to serve others, if you make it your mission that my life isn't going to be about me, because most of us go through life and we probably orient ourselves more this way than we should, it's about me, it's about what I need, it's about what, what you can do for me, it's about getting my needs met. But if we orient our life differently from that and we say it's about you, guess what you find out? You find out that you get encouraged just as much, if not more, than you encourage the other person. There's some people in this room today who are battling, battling, you know, real issues in their life, constantly feeling depressed, constantly feeling down, constantly feeling like your life is of no value. I would submit to you the number one thing you need to do is stop looking at your own heart and start looking at others' hearts. You need some mutual encouragement. Notice what Paul says here. Did Paul have a reason, by the way, to, to really to get down at times? Did Paul have some reasons ever in his life? You, you know anything about Paul? Did he have a hard life at times? And he admits it here. You see that? I need encouraged. But before I'm going to be encouraged by you, I'm coming to encourage you. Because here's what I know. Paul knew this. If I come to serve you, you're going to be a blessing to me. You want to know what? I think, I think every one of my fellow elders would agree to me. One of the greatest blessings of being an elder is, is that you get encouraged more often than you even realize. That you catch stuff from people that you never even knew would encourage you. Am I right, guys? How many of you ever taught a Sunday school class, even of little kids? How many of you ever done that in your life? Have you found that to be a blessing? There is nothing better than a five-year-old who gets it. Right? Am I right? There's nothing better than that. When they sit there and they can recite truth back to you, that is a huge blessing to you, and you're like, I will put up with the nose-picking and everything else. Right? 
And what Paul's saying here is his number one motive for wanting to get there is, I've got something to share with you. That word gift is interesting. The word is charisma. And what, what I take that to mean is, it's a gift of grace. It's not some spiritual gift, some special thing that the Romans had that no other churches had. What he's saying is, I want to give to you this gift of grace. And what that grace is, I want to impart to you some truth that will help you and that will give you some deep roots in your, in your spiritual walk. Paul here is saying this, I'm coming to give you some beneficial instruction, and here's what I know. When I come to teach you, you're going to be a blessing to me. I will never forget the blessing that little Haitian boys and girls were to me when we went down there to just do a little simple soccer camp for them. Like, it was, it was, you know, we thought, you know, this is, this is a, a big deal that we're going down there and doing all this stuff, and, and we're going to try and be a blessing to the missionaries down there and a blessing to these kids, and I left feeling like I got more blessed than I ever blessed any one of them. So Paul was hopeful that he would receive some benefit from it. It takes humility to admit that you need to be encouraged. It does. And too often, can I say this, we view our relationships as one-sided. How many of you have that friend, that one person that you talk to that you can lay anything on them? Come on, be honest. How many of you have that person? How many of you actually, though, are willing to take from that person? It's not a one-sided thing. We've got to move on to motivation number two. Paul had a strong desire for lasting gospel fruit. So there, halfway through verse 13, as he's talking about this desire to be mutually encouraged, he says this, that in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles, Paul understood this, that there were souls there in Rome that needed to come to Christ, and he was hoping to be a part of that harvest of souls. Paul wanted to see Roman believers get mature in Christ, but he also wanted to see more Romans come to know Jesus as their Savior. Isn't that just logical when you think about it as a believer? If the gospel has truly transformed you, don't you want others to be transformed by it? Because here's the thing, I can put that with a negative side. If you don't have a desire to see others transformed by the gospel, there's a chance that maybe you truly haven't been transformed by the gospel. He says it this way. I've often wanted to come, and I want to reap a harvest among you, as well as the rest of the Gentiles. His heart was a discipler's heart. It was a discipleship heart. He wanted to see people advancing in Christ by first coming to know Him as Lord and Savior, and then by growing in Him. So much so that knowing that going to Rome would risk his own life. Now think about that. Paul's a pretty well-known dude in the world, is he not? Everywhere he goes, there's a gospel problem that starts, right? People get saved. Some people give up their careers. Other people end up, stop, they stop cheating people, whatever. And, and everywhere Paul goes, the gospel causes a problem. Not Paul, the gospel. 
You suppose that it's going to cause a problem in Rome? Yeah. Quickly, I want you to see his third motivation. It says there in verse 14, he's motivated by a sense of duty. Now, we've got to be careful with this. Some of you know what this is like, because every Monday morning you get up and you go to work out of a sense of duty. Like, yeah, if I don't go, the bills don't get paid, we go penniless, we lose our house, we lose our cars. It's a sense of duty. How many of you have ever done something out of a sense of duty? Not because you really loved it, but you just knew you had to do it. I've had some jobs where it was just like, oh boy, here we go, yeah. Got to get up and do it because I need a paycheck, right? That's not the obligation that he's talking about here. It's not a legalistic, I have to do it, but rather it's this. I have been given so much, how can I not get up and do this? This obligation that he's under. And notice who he's under obligation to. Greeks and barbarians, that's an interesting way to, to, to classify people. Don't think of Greeks as those who are of Greek descent. Think of Greeks as those who have been educated under, under Greek philosophy and those, and those people who were considered to be the intelligentsia of their day. Even in Roman society, the smartest people or the people who were considered the smartest in Roman society were those who had been trained as Greeks. They had been trained in Greek philosophy. They had been trained in, in the way of Greek thinking. Greek, Greek was the form, or the Greeks, the Greeks brought in, you know, the form of government that the Romans took, and they said that they had actually made better. And then the Americans took it and made it worse. You'll get that later. Anyway, but the Greeks were considered to be the most enlightened people. So he's saying this, I'm indebted to the smartest people of the world all the way down to the barbarians. And well, barbarians are just what? They're barbaric, right? And what he's saying is, I'm indebted to the smartest people all the way down to the people who haven't been educated at all. Keep going. I'm indebted to the wise and to the foolish. Is the world full of foolish people? Church, is it? Yes. Guess what? You and I are one of them. We are. But I want you to catch what Paul's saying here. From the elite of the day who had embraced all the culture and all this stuff to the lower, lowest classes, the gospel is for all. It's for every people, tongue, tribe, and nation. It's for the tribes in Colombia that don't have a written language that we think to ourselves, how do they even survive? Quite well, probably. It's for those people as much as it is for the people who live out in the snobby Hamptons on New York. For the common everyday folk who live in rural or suburban America, the gospel is for all. And it doesn't matter. We need to have the same eagerness that Paul had to preach it to all, to share it with all. There's one thing more that motivates Paul, and we'll get to it next week in verses 16 and 17, and the fact that the gospel is an unstoppable force. And that really gets him motivated, but we'll talk about that next week. So in conclusion this morning... 
think about the ministries that you have. If you can't name too many, you probably should probably be serving more, by the way. But think about the ministries that you have, formal and informal. If you have children at home, you have a ministry. If you have a spouse, you have a ministry. Did you know that? You do. Some of us are blessed to even have grandchildren in this room. But all of us have opportunities for ministry. The ministries that you have, whether they're at home or in your vocation or here in the local church or with your friends or your neighbors, to be effective, you first have to really care. You have to really care. And it's not a matter of saying you care. Anybody can say that they care. Every Valentine's Day is proof of that. Am I right? If, it was, if that's all it took to be a good husband, just, you know, one, one box of chocolates, a dozen roses, and a card, every one of us could get that test right. Right, husbands? Right? It's do you care day in and day out? You have to care. Ministries and the people we minister to, you first have to care. Paul sets the example for us. But let's understand how amazing the gospel is. <laughs> the fact that Jesus came and died for people who didn't deserve it <laughs> is a pretty powerful motivating force, isn't it? In fact, it's an unstoppable force. I submit to you, it is the force that has changed the world and it's continuing to change the world. You don't feel like the world is being changed by it, but it is. The gospel makes it possible for the family of God to be mutually beneficial and encouraging to one another. Think about this. Just, just do me a favor. Look around this room right now. You guys are a weird mix of people. You are. Some of you are farmer types. Some of you are snooty office types. Some of you got tattoos, some of you got weird hair, some of you got no hair, some of you dress funny, some of you have weird backgrounds. What makes us mutually beneficial to each other? The gospel of Jesus Christ. That is a pretty powerful force, is it not? It makes, the gospel makes it possible for a weird room like this to actually be able to get along and be beneficial to one another. Even the people in this room that don't even want to be gotten along with, you know who you are. The gospel makes it possible for us to all get along and actually be a benefit to one another. I don't want anybody to benefit me. Oh, just stop. Enough with that. The gospel, if we truly embrace it, though, should motivate us to want others to come and know this glorious Savior. Isn't that what Paul's telling us here? The gospel so radically changed his life that, yeah, the little problem kid who comes to my impact meeting every Wednesday night, the one who's constantly causing trouble the whole night, I want him or her to so much know Jesus. I am going to love them in spite of it. I've done youth work for many years. That's hard to do, isn't it, teen leaders? 
It's hard to, is it hard to do, Andy? It's hard to love the guy that you, that you share an office with, isn't it? Well, it is hard for one of those guys anyway. But the gospel motivates us to want to see others come and know and love Jesus. Because we know this, that, that if we ourselves never came to know and love Jesus, there would have never been any purpose for our life. We, we know that there would have been never ho- any hope for us, and we want that hope to be shared with others, don't we? Uh, hello, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. We're going to be reminded at, in just a minute, the task isn't done. The task isn't done. How many of you know people who don't know Jesus and don't love him? If you don't, just go, just go to Kroger or go to the gas station or, 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 or stop, stop and get fast food on the way home. You'll be reminded, right? The task isn't done, which tells us this. There are plenty of opportunities for us to go out and share the gospel, are there not? And so God make it to be so. Let's be reminded of that. Dave, bring the team up here. Let's sing together, and then we'll close the service out.